Welcome, welcome, welcome to another exciting episode of Nuclear Knowledge, a weekly broadcast of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies, where we want to strengthen national security, preserve peace, and help you think deterrence. I'm your host, Jim Petrosky, and today's episode is about the differences between conventional and nuclear detonations. As a disclaimer, details about the differences far beyond the scope and time of this podcast. However, I'll give you enough information to clarify the differences so that when you see the more detailed parts, you have a better understanding. So, let's get started. Have you ever wondered what are the difference between a conventional and nuclear explosion? The difference is somewhat confusing because sometimes we often describe both using very similar language. Also, the differences relate to technologies and physical processes that are not part of your daily life. For that reason, this podcast will focus on military-relevant differences, effects, delivery, and scalability. One often confusing aspect in discussing bombs is that we use the concept of a kiloton or ton to describe the size of the bomb. These measurements describe the energy of the bomb compared to the energy output from an equal weight of explosive energy from TNT. Perhaps it would be correct to say that a 6.5 ton Grand Slam bomb, the largest conventional bomb used in World War II, has the equivalent energy of a 6.5 ton nuclear bomb. And that would be true. However, the military relevant characteristics are much different. You might ask why? And surprisingly, it's not some fancy physical phenomenology necessarily. It's mostly due to timing. A conventional explosion is made by chemical reactions, mostly requiring oxygen. The explosion time varies with the size and design, but we'll just say it takes about a second for the explosion to occur. During this time, energy spends much time reducing the temperature and pressure because it's spreading out inside the explosion. A nuclear explosion, however, occurs over a significantly shorter time, allowing the temperature and pressure to rise to very, very high levels, even for the same explosive energy. Now, you need to think about that a little bit, and it's a little hard to especially do on a podcast, but I'm an experimentalist, and I love experiments. So a good example of this difference can be done outside, not inside your house, using a small plastic bottle filled with soda. Pick your favorite, hopefully not a sugary one if you're near something that you don't want sticky, and an Alka-Seltzer pill. If you put the Alka-Seltzer pill in the bottle and leave the lid off the bottle, get away from it very quickly after you drop it in, the energy will violently but slowly push the bottle of soda out of the bottle. If you do this with another bottle, but instead, after you put the Alka-Seltzer in, put the lid on, and again, get far from it. The pressure will build, and the bottle will eventually fail, releasing the same energy, but over an extremely short period of time, causing a loud bang sound, and you get a little bit of a throw out of that. Both are the same energy, but released in different time increments and resulting in different effects. With that behind us, and having possibly scared your neighbor, Let's look at how this timing changes the military-relevant characteristics for the same yield nuclear and conventional detonations. 
from an, ex, uh, from an effect standpoint, both conventional and nuclear weapons produce blasts. They go boom. You get overpressure and shock, that's what you're hearing, as the explosion pushes against the atmosphere. Since the timing of the detonation for a nuclear weapon is much shorter, though, the resulting shock wave is compressed. It's pushed together like a spring, and it's compressed in time so that the overpressure and the shock are greatly increased, even if the two weapons have the same yield. Both conventional nuclear weapon explosions result in a thermal energy pulse. This energy is transferred from the detonation to the surrounding area via electromagnetic energy. For conventional detonations, the heating and the, and the detonation results in infrared radiation. It's why you can feel the heat from, say, a fire or a blast while you're far away. It's the infrared radiation that comes to you. It's, I always say, it's why we stick our hands up when you get near a fire in a cold day. The air is not hot. The fire is radiating that heat. However, the shorter detonation time for a nuclear explosion results in very, very high temperatures and for all yields, no matter what, and creates a high energy radiation that can travel further from the blast and move that heat further from the blast. This results in burns and fires to people and structures that are not shielded from the thermal energy that are far away from the detonation. So that's a difference between the two different uh, two weapon types. The, out, the output of high energy radiation in the form of gamma, beta, beta radiation, and neutrons is a result of the use of nuclear fuel. And it's not an effect from a conventional detonation at all, clearly defining the two as being different. These radiations add to the damage to personnel exposed near the detonation, resulting in prompt radiation sickness and death. The high-energy gamma radiation also can produce a sharp electromagnetic pulse, or EMP, under the right conditions. And lastly, the neutrons coming from the weapon interact with surrounding material, making them radioactive. This can result in worldwide radiation dispersion and local fallout that can persist from seconds to centuries. This is sometimes a, a desired effect and oftentimes not a desired effect. A good way to remember these effects is the word bostard. That's right, you heard me right, bostard, which stands for blast, overpressure, shock, thermal, EMP, radiation, and dust. And although I didn't cover dust in this podcast, it's an important effect and also helps the mnemonic become a little more memorable. The different effect is only a portion of the important military differences. Because more energy is packed into a smaller space with nuclear weapons, this makes delivery options different for them, depending on the desired effect, of course. A good example is in the bombing of uh, the city of Essen in 1945. The city was completely reduced to rubble after a thousand aircraft were used to drop over two and a half tons of bombs. And although I can't, I don't know exactly the uh, type of bomb, so I don't know the TNT equivalent in explosion, this number's close enough in weight uh, to give a comparison to the Little Boy nuclear weapon that dropped on Hiroshima. Little Boy weighed about 4.5 tons, but resulted in 15,000 or 15 kiloton explosion. So that's quite a bit different. And then you add to that that it only required one delivery aircraft. Major difference in delivery. 
Scalability, or the ability to design weapons with a needed military effect, allows one to pick the right munition for the needed effect in the mission. For conventional munitions, the limit due to effectively consuming the chemical fuel is about 4.5 tons. You may recall earlier in this podcast, I mentioned this grand slam bomb from World War II. However, nuclear bombs can be made to provide very small to very large yields. For example, the Davy Crockett nuclear weapon system fired a 50-pound device with a yield of about 20 tons. That's fairly low. Whereas the largest nuclear bomb thus far uh, being detonated it was the Tsar Bomba. Coming, uh, it was done in Russia, and it was at 50 megatons or 50 million tons, but only weighed 29 tons. So a lot of explosive power, very low weight. So before I end this podcast, I want to highlight that both nuclear and conventional explosive weapons are important to our overall national deterrence strategy. They both give us the ability to cause someone to change uh, their action or reaction in a way that we can tailor. For example, conventional weapons, especially when precision delivered, provide a surgical stripe capability with less collateral damage and international consequences than with nuclear weapons. It thus allows for a scaled deterrent strategy not afforded with nuclear weapons. Not putting nuclear weapons out, just saying it's part of the mix. So it's my goal in this episode that you leave thinking how deterrence is achieved through both types of explosives. And we'll discuss a lot of these other details in later episodes. So thank you for listening to today's Nuclear Knowledge Podcast. I hope you learned something new and value about deterrence. This podcast is produced weekly. Visit our public page to learn more about the National Institute for Deterrence Studies. I thank our producer, Kimberly Sherrington, our sponsors, and all the fantastic members of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies for making this podcast possible. Stay tuned next week for another exciting and informative nuclear knowledge. Bye-bye.